0: Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to have a gentleman calling in from Zurich, Switzerland today, who has truly lived and worked around the world for three decades, been on the forefront of sports marketing industry or the sports industry, uh, multiple levels, tons of companies he worked with. Um, it's going to be a packed 60 minutes here to cover this gentleman's uh, career path and, and the amazing stories inside of it. So Welcome to the podcast, Claude Rubal. Great to be here, Marcus.
1: It's so nice to spend some time with you and and talk about sport over the last three decades. I think I've got certainly a perspective on that and how it's evolved, but really excited to spend some time with you. You've obviously had a, an amazing group of people as part of your podcast, and uh, feel honored to be able to join that group.
0: No, wow, you fit right in there i absolutely um you know, and many people will obviously know who you are. Uh, or at least know of you in in many of the roles you played over the years. But uh, let me just give a quick sort of intro, um, framing it what we we'd be talking about. Um, so we're going to go through the three decades you've been part of this this beautiful environment of the world, and it's almost four decades to some degree, really. Shh, don't um, tell everybody that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you know we we're, we're going to talk a bit about how it all started in the U.S. Uh, at the LA Olympics. Then um, we'll talk, you know, the, the sort of one big, big block here of Saatchi and Saatchi, ISL and Coca-Cola. I mean, that alone, I think we could do a whole podcast on. Um, then, you know, you, you went on to Ask.com, uh, Universal Sports, which is going to be some great stuff in there. Uh, and then, of course, really the last decade here, which was Google, you know, and YouTube, which you know, is going to be some great stuff. And then, of course... Uh, Let's call it the wonder group in front slash h b s and and that's I'm sure where many people will know you from of course your different roles there. Um, in the at the top end of the production world uh, for FIFA World Cups and, and many other events. So, but before we get to all that part, let's go back again to how it all started. And and, and you mentioned, um, you know, you obviously you, you are from the US, even though your name is a little could be a bit confusing for certain folks. Uh, so you have a bit of an interesting background there, I guess, being uh, half Cuban and half. Uh, uh, Where was the other half again I'm from? Sure. Hungary, Hungary, sorry. That's Hungary. That's right. Right. My dad, <laughs> Cuba, um, my,
1: dad my dad actually went to Catholic school with Fidel Castro in Havana, if you can believe that. Wow. They were in this, you know, same elementary school together. We I love that.
0: Okay, well, that that's a great way to start it already. Um, and it gets more interesting, because then also, you also did obviously some stuff in the US with, with other US presidents here. So now, but you did study at uh, Georgetown University, you have your law degree there. And that's a big basketball university, of course, as well. So a little shout out there. And but let's get in there. Um, how once you get uh, once you graduated, uh, my understanding is you got involved in the LA Olympics. Uh, tell us a bit about that and, and how that sort of the early days there before we get to the Sachi stories sure i mean it was great being at georgetown it was the
1: patrick ewing year so obviously i had a pretty oh, good right. team uh almost won the NCAA's while i was there it was impressive uh amazing coaching there it was uh, a great experience being in washington dc working on the hill and in the senate for a while with uh with some of the senators there and uh, it was just a terrific experience but uh i always had this you know strong passion and interest in, in continuing to be involved in sports i would played some sports in high school. Uh, Sort of, you know, not the main uh, U.S. sports of, you know, baseball, basketball, football, but I played tennis, I ran cross country and track, and then in in college I played a little bit of volleyball and tennis. Um, Mm. And then uh, coming out of law school, uh, for me the most exciting thing happening in the USA. I graduated law school in '82, and if you look kind of ahead, you know, in my mind it was the 1984 Olympics. I mean, you know, what more cool event could be happening in the in the domestic USA? It hadn't been. in the, at least in the uh, in LA since 1932, so 52 That's years right. on, um, and you know, led by Peter Ubroth, who was really an inspirational kind of visionary leader. Mm. Uh, so a friend of mine worked in the, the at the time uh, the mayor Mayor Bradley Tom Bradley was mayor, and he worked in the mayor's office. So I kind of networked through through him to see if I could get an interview. It wasn't in the days of the internet where you can just find job postings and apply online. So you yeah. kind of had to work your way through to find find an opportunity so i put in my resume i think i must graduate law school probably in may and then come probably september october i got a call from the organizing committee went in and interviewed and and uh, ultimately got a job um kind of doing a little bit of everything. My first boss there was a woman named Anita De France. You're probably familiar with her name, but she's now been an IOC member since 1986. Mm. And um, <clears throat> it was a great experience. Um, Ubroth was just incredible. His sort of number two guy, Harry Usher, they just had this vision around... You know, not building all the facilities from scratch and spending billions of dollars to create sort of all the infrastructure you need for the games, but using existing facilities that, that were all around the greater LA area, and all the way down to San Diego and up to Santa Barbara. Um, and so I helped, you know, probably you, know, you think two years out before the Olympics. I mean, we were just yeah, I think when I started, there were probably maybe 40 or 50 people on the organizing committee, maybe at the most 100. And you think today, two years before an Olympic Games, there's probably 2,000 people working in the local organizing okay. committee more. it's just you just see how these things have exponentially gotten bigger and more complex as, as mm. time has gone by. But I spent a lot of time negotiating a lot of the deals with the with the basic the universities, UCLA, USC, UC Santa Barbara, where we would put basically all the athletes, and we created three athlete villages uh, at those different facilities. The one in Santa Barbara was for, uh, for the rowing, canoeing, and kayaking athletes, and it ended up turning out as we got closer and closer to the games, you had to become more and more specialized, and I was given the opportunity to lead the village up at UC Santa Barbara, partly because I'd graduated as an undergraduate from there. I'd been student, student body president there. I knew a lot of the university administrators, the, the chancellor. Did, did know,
0: they university. hire you as a lawyer or, or in what particular role were you in They hired
1: me uh, not as a lawyer, but as a, a negotiator of agreements. I mean, I didn't okay. come in as a lawyer per se in the legal department. I was really kind of, an, I guess I would describe um is uh, Olympic Family Services, I think, is what our group was called. And we basically dealt with the National Olympic Committees and kind of dealt with all their needs as it relates to the athletes coming to the USA, housing them, feeding them, and then making sure that their experience as, as it relates to transportation, and getting to the venues, training, and all that were, mm. was real well taken care of. So we had I to kind that. of organize all that. I love it. Um, so uh, during the games, I, I ran the village up in Santa Barbara. It was a, a great experience. We had uh, a local leader, Pete Giordano, and his wife, Gerd, were our mayors, and they kind of were greeting all the athletes as they arrived from all around the world. And, and uh, it, it went really, really well. As, as you know, the kind of the outcome of the games was, you know, you, uh, the L.A. Olympic Committee had, like, I uh, think about a $220 million surplus. You know, half yep. of that money was given to the U.S. Olympic Committee. And then the other half was was uh, set up to create a foundation uh, in LA to further help sports and youth development and sports in the greater LA area. So um, oh, it was a cool. foundational experience with you know a really broad group of of young people making things happen. And it was kind of an early stage sort of modern office setup. We he you know, we ultimately moved to a giant helicopter uh, factory hangar that was left over in sort of Marina oh, Del Rey. Right. And it's big open space planning, which you know today is very typical, but back then was very unusual and, and, and not sort of your normal setup.
0: I love it. Yeah, I had uh, Chris Pepe on it recently. Um, he's mm-hmm. currently the chief uh, commercial officer of, of LA 228. Yeah. So we kind of started the story there, and I at that time shared my little uh, 1984, right? Earlier, I think 86, I got the dates wrong here. Uh, story of that, uh, watching it from my bedroom. So as I said earlier, you were right in the middle of it, while I'm uh, still uh, was a young, young man watching it from my, my bedroom there at night. Um, now before, and, and I, as I said, we have so many stories. I and I'd love to spend more there, but uh, because it was such an amazing Olympic, it, it it had a very big impact on me too. Um, it was one of those moments where, uh, you know, I really grasped the world and the power of sports. Now, what was the big moment for you? You know, again, it was still a, you know early days for you as well as a as the young graduate there what was sort of the 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 highlight of it for you uh if you look at back at that event
1: what what i really found and i think a good learning for me was that we had this massive group sort of cross-functional coordination from you know the people that ran the venues the people that decorated the venues the teams that Organize the transportation, the teams that organized the medal ceremonies, the, you know, hospitality, everything that, you know, you had to kind of do and take care of as it relates to the athletes, as it relates to the competition. It was just a really well integrated team of people uh, that worked really well together. There wasn't a lot of politics in the organization. Uh, I think it was just, you know, everyone was all about getting it done and Mm -hmm. and having and showcasing for everyone coming from all around the world to experience a, a, a great a great event in Los Angeles. Obviously, you know, you know, the, the worst day during that whole period was when Russia said they would be boycotting the event. Obviously, that was a, a pretty tough day for everyone because that meant there were more countries besides Russia that wouldn't attend. Um, and, you know, I remember Peter, you know, having a sort of open meeting with everyone sort of huddled on the main floor where we all worked, just sort of talking to everyone about it, keeping everyone positive, and And then everyone did their best to try and attract as many you know, at the time, Eastern company countries to come and, and still, you know, attend the games. Romania, as you may remember, attended. And uh, most of the others probably continued and were part of the boycott. But, but you know, that was, a, that was a tough day, but ultimately everyone got through it. The games still were incredibly successful. It would have been nice if everyone had attended, but, you know, it was what it was. Yes, uh, right. And then the outcome with, with the profitability and, and, and showing that you could really make things work for an Olympic Games and not have a deficit that would, you know, really impact a city or a country for years afterwards, I think was really a, a great success for the Olympic movement for long Antonio Samaranch, who was the president at the time. I think, you know, that was a, a real turning point for the Olympic movement. I think at the time when L.A. was bidding For the games, the only other city slash country that was even bidding was was Tehran, Iran. So, I mean, it wasn't like you had this huge bidding war because I think at the time it was considered to be a risky thing to do, seeing what had happened up in Montreal and some of the other cities that had hosted the games.
0: Now, so you know, let's uh, wrap that the LA games there for a minute. Um, you know, you spent the next couple of you know years. It's almost like four or five years before you then uh, landed in Saatchi and Saatchi here, which we want to go to later. But what 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 do you do in between? Uh, I understand there was something to do with some U.S. presidential elections and and the launch of a small little football league. <laughs> Talk us through that for a minute.
1: <laughs> well, I'd, I'd always say yeah, I'd, I'd gone to law school in Washington D.C., and I always sort of had this <clears throat> ambition and interest to. Uh, to uh, to work in the White House or you know work oh, for okay. a president, you know right. be involved in in some role or capacity there. So, you know I've been a Democrat all my life. Um, I think you sort of inherit some of that from your parents, um, but certainly have a sense of the values. And 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 and, and as a result, you in uh, during the early stage of the presidential, presidential campaign, I got behind uh, a candidate from uh, Massachusetts, uh, Michael Dukakis, and mm, basically just. Yeah. <laughs> we flew up to, to Boston again, you know, just kind of knocked on the door and said, here, I'm here to volunteer. Everyone kind of said, great, go do this, go do that. And eventually during the primaries, because in uh, presidential election, you have primaries state by state. So I you know, worked in the primaries in California, up in Washington and uh, Pennsylvania and a few other states, Delaware. And ultimately, Dukakis got the nomination and was, you know, the, the presidential candidate for the Democratic Party mm-hmm. uh, against uh, George Bush. Right. And uh, actually coming out of the convention, I think you know, it was in August, you know, uh, Dukakis, you know had a pretty good bump and I think was leading in the polls and was doing quite well. Uh, during the, the general election, you know everyone was sort of seconded to do a specific job, and I was asked to kind of, uh, work with a woman named Dee, Dee Myers, uh, who ultimately ca- became a press secretary under um, President Bill Clinton. But Dee, Dee and I worked together in, in California, uh, kind of handling all the communications and press relations uh, for the state of California for that election. But uh, that was a, a really fun experience to kind of learn how to communicate uh, a, a brand, so to speak, uh, out to a, a broader audience. And um, and uh, was good learning. Ultimately, uh, Bush won the election. Uh, so, so similar to um, uh, the LA Olympics, as as, uh, as Peter Ubaroth said to all of us when we were working on the LA Olympic Games, and as it happened with Dukakis, you, you're given guaranteed termination at the end of the Olympic Games. So, <laughs> it, uh, when Dukakis uh, ultimately lost, you know, we all sort of were were uh, said thanks a lot for all the help and good luck in your in your life, and I hope you find a great job. So. Uh, yeah. Kind of coming out of that actually i am um, I, I actually was headhunted by by someone uh, uh oh actually what no it didn't happen that way i was um was uh, a, a colleague of mine that i worked with on the la olympics um had gone to work at the united states football league uh with uh an individual named harry usher who i mentioned earlier who'd been sort of the number two guy on the la olympics And the United States Football League was a rival to the NFL, played in the summertime and had quite a few teams, L.A., Memphis, New Jersey, a number of places across the country. And they had a few seasons and, uh, you know, it was looking like, you know, they could kind of make a success of it. They had a really good contract, uh, TV contract for distribution. And, uh, so after the first couple of seasons, I went there to kind of manage kind of player relations, uh, mm-hmm. and kind of help the teams as it relates to the player contracts and relationships with the, with the teams and, and spent probably, you know, a year working on that. Uh, at the time, one of our owners was Donald Trump, uh, and that was pretty interesting. We had a number of meetings with, with the, with the owners a few times at his, uh, his resorts down in uh, New Jersey. Um, and, um, ultimately, uh, the United States Football League decided they were going to sue the NFL and antitrust, feeling that they weren't being treated properly, and the NFL was sort of prohibiting them from being successful. It was a big lawsuit. There was a lot of money involved in terms of you know preparing and, and going through the lawsuit, and and um, the United States Football League actually prevailed in the lawsuit, but then. It was determined that the damages uh, that would be assessed against the NFL was one dollar. And in, in uh, antitrust lawsuits, damages are trebled. So that it was three dollars. <laughs> was going to be given okay. to the United States Football League. Uh, and that certainly wasn't uh, a, a very, it was a pyrrhic victory, so to speak, for the United States Football League. And I think soon after that, you know, I think the ownership uh, and, the, uh, and working with the commissioner decided that this wasn't really something that could prevail long term. Oh, and things disbanded. Interesting, so,
0: trying to sue the the, the group who you're trying to get to Dubai. You're trying to sue yeah. them. That, that sounds yeah, like certainly. a bit of a Donald Trump Definitely.
1: move. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's very true. I mean, you play play hardball, and I think you know, they did play hardball. No one blinked we ultimately won the lawsuit, but we kind of lost when it came to the damages. And certainly there was no need for the NFL, um, and Pete Rozelle and his leadership at the time to, to try and acquire or merge with the USFL. So I think things slowly disbanded. So, so again, I took another job that I got, you know, uh, terminated from, so to speak, because things ended, uh, yeah. but, uh, that's okay. It wasn't because of my work. It was more just because the, the business was ending, but I kind of Think of myself as a startup kind of guy. We spoke about this a little bit earlier, Marcus, and I, you know, I think the LA Olympics is a startup business, the way we began the whole thing. I think Dukakis for president is a startup business. And frankly, the United States Football League was definitely a startup business. So there's some risks around that, but there can be a big upside. And that's what I find, you know, kind of engaging and exciting to do in life.
0: Yeah, well, um, and like I said, you know, we're we're not even halfway through it. <laughs> so and then uh, we've already got these amazing stories here. Uh, yeah. So now, somehow, obviously, you you ended up coming in, you know, for where you are ever at us in the US at that moment in time. Your next stop here is uh, London, Paris, Madrid, and Barcelona. If, you know, in, in whatever order that is. Um, which ended up with Sachi and Sachi. How, how did you you know end up from? I guess. Uh, you know, after the American Football League uh, uh, stopped, uh, how did you get into uh, into that into the advertising industry world? I guess um, in Europe. Um, yeah, so I,
1: I, after Dukakis, uh finished, I was already living in LA because I had been involved in you know running the California effort. So just stayed there, and probably a few months after that, uh, a friend of mine knew uh, a headhunter was looking for someone who had some sports experience and sports marketing experience. I didn't have a lot of direct sports marketing experience at the time then because I mostly worked sort of organizing the Olympics. But mm. I guess I was able to convince the headhunter and ultimately my employers uh, at Satchi & that I had enough experience and relationship with sports that they'd give me a shot. Um, and what they were trying to do, Satya & was a big agency headquartered yep. out of London. Uh, they, they had acquired some other agencies, one called BSB, Backers, Bill Vogel Bates. Uh, so they had a number of sort of uh, other agencies and some of the other key markets around the world. But, were, but they were finding the account management teams and the creative teams were finding that a lot of their big brand uh, uh, companies that they work with, the Mars Corporation, Seiko, Visa, right. and a few others, were becoming, for the first time, sponsors of major big sporting events, be it the mm-hmm. Olympic Games or the FIFA World Cup. And for a lot of these brands, and even for the agency side, the Saatchi and Saatchi side, they hadn't really had much experience around how do you leverage a brand relationship with a sport and what should you do to activate that brand relationship right. with the sport. Uh, and so you have these really big agencies that are really good at creating you know, 30- and 60-minute advertising commercials and creating promotional uh, materials uh, for in-store display and things like that. But there wasn't a, a large set of people within the organization uh, at Saatchi and Saatchi and their key markets that had really done much work with, you know, creatively, how do you link a brand to a sport? And if you're getting and becoming a sponsor of a sport, what do you do with these rights that you get? And at the time, I'll talk about this later, it hasn't really changed much since back then, but at the time, you know the rights a brand would get would be you get you know in some cases not at the Olympics but on a lot of other sports you get boards on the field of play for brand exposure you get tickets and you get hospitality and then for the Olympics you can use the rings uh, along with other sports you can use the logo of that organization on your product or in other points of sale to help you know better define and associate yourself and and have some you know good rub off brand effect for your product uh, with the consumer but. You know, any kind of sophisticated sense on how best to do that uh, and and having people that had some experience with account managing a rights holder, a federation or the IOC uh, and, and leveraging those 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 rights that you acquired uh, in an optimal way, there just wasn't a, a real skill set there. So mm. so I, I actually moved to London uh, and they pretty quickly told me, well, you're going to actually have to open up. And again, this is another startup within a bigger company. You have to open up a team in, in Madrid, a team in Barcelona, a team in Paris, and a team in London that, that are going to help the agency teams, uh, the traditional agency teams and the creatives work with all these sports uh uh organizations that had become sponsored by a lot of the brands right. that Sachi and Sachi were working with.
0: Right, right. And I think again, there is a little 92 uh, Olympic story obviously, you know, coming out of the 84. I'm assuming you had some good experience there. Um, they, they put you on that as well. So that was sort of uh, I guess the Olympics uh, before you then moved on, right?
1: Sachi Absolutely I um, so as part of setting up the uh, the team at our Paris office, our Paris Satya and Sachi office, uh, I brought in uh, uh, a person named Lucien Boyer, um, mm. who since has had a great career in sports and he it, a good
0: uh, friend. <laughs> uh, i know okay, up. <laughs> uh,
1: but I think he was at the Larousse uh, Formula One team at the time, and then you know he came to me through some networking, and we got along, and we thought you know we'd have him come in and lead the office in Paris. Mm. Uh, so he brought in a team. And, you know, we started working with the local agency and doing a lot of sports-related activities that was sort of France-specific around some sporting activities around football and some other things that were happening there. but. But ultimately, we got an interesting. uh, We pitched and we got an interesting uh, win uh, to really represent the uh, the European Community, which was in the part of the they were at the time, you know, kind of unifying the EC and trying to kind of market that across the EC as being beneficial and a good thing to have. This is well before the times of Brexit, Um, and uh, the the European Community decided to probably invest. I think it was around ten or twelve million dollars. Uh, as a sponsorship relationship with the Alberville Winter Games and the, and the Barcelona Summer Games. Okay. So we were basically hired to come up with an activation around that. How, how could they best leverage that relationship with both those Olympic Games to further promote the, the, the benefits of the unification of the EC? All
0: right. Interesting. Oh, cool. Now, uh, now we're at the sort of we're ninety two here. Um, we slowly made working our way up here. Um, and then now we we, we kind of somewhat cross past probably without maybe knowing it. Um, you ended up in ISL marketing, obviously again You were off in Dallas, of, right? Is that where
1: really I was that's
0: right. That was sort of uh you know some of your early story of how you started with the the LA uh, games. Uh, you know where you said you volunteered and, and you kind of got in there. That's how I that's how I got in there. <laughs> that you know I was studying in the in Dallas were in Fort Worth at that time, and and I ended up uh, working with the organizing committee first, and then eventually had a you know a very small sort of uh, job with ISL during the during the 1994 World Cup. But uh, obviously you're you're there as senior VP while I'm a uh, you know a, a little like an intern there, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. So I'm a, you know, my my career started about ten years later. Um, and, and now, again, you know, in, in such and Sachi you're very much in the advertising space, as you said, you know, brand leveraging, you know, and, and figuring out how to use the investment the sponsor is making into these games, uh, you know, how to maximize it. Now, ISL is the other side of it, right? You are on, the, you know, you're on the side where you're selling to the sponsors and pitching to it. And, and from what I can see here, at least you were pretty much across everything from TV to sponsorship and everything else. What was your main focus there? Uh, was it just pure sales in all areas or how was, how was it broken down? Yeah, I
1: think, um, in, you know, if you look at my, my experience, I mean, we've talked about some of the first things I did, I sort of, you know, didn't have much choice. The The businesses ended, so I had to move on to find something new. But each time, yeah, even then later in my career, I've always sort of found like after three or four or five years, I'm, you know, I'm ready to go up the learning curve again and try something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so Uh, I'd done a lot of work with Saatchi. I'd set up the offices in Madrid and Barcelona and, 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 and in, in London. I think they were all doing really well. I hired a team of people for each of those offices and, you know, they'd really built the capability to do effectively, you know, leverage brands with sports. Um, and, uh, I'd never worked sort of on the the federation side and agency side, and I'd always had sort of an interest in that. I'd, I'd met Mark McCormick once at the U.S. Open tennis tournament, just walked up to him and said, gee, I'd really like to work at your company. He said, well, here's my card. Talk to this guy. And things didn't work out. <laughs> right. But it always seemed like, you know, as part of my learning for my life and kind of, you know, I think life is always about constantly learning. It was a chance to to come and work at an agency and, and leverage and help a sport, you know, with broadcaster sales and with sponsorship sales and to kind of help build that sport and the visibility of that sport on a global basis and also help them organize their events on a city by city basis. So I was brought in um, and asked to kind of lead the at the time called the International Amateur Athletics Federation wow. now called Athletics. Uh, and the leader of that was a guy named Primo Nebbiolo, who was located down in Rome. Uh, and his sort of chief of staff was a guy named Bob Fazzula, who now is uh, kind of the head of the uh, International Surfing Association, uh, or at least leads him as the, the general secretary, I believe. And um, and so I spent most of my my four or five years there uh, really, you know, helping the International Athletics Federation, IWF, hmm. you know, their, in their broadcaster sales and their sponsorship sales and 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 really kind of building visibility of that brand and and really increasing the 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 sales to the broadcasters considerably and uh, and helping kind of organize the events you know market by market where they took place. But for me, it was just a great learning experience to 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 see things from uh, uh, an agency side, a sports agency side of things. Uh, I hadn't really been doing that. I hadn't worked with brands. Uh, In terms of selling to the brands, I'd help the brands activate, but I hadn't had to have to sell into the brands, be it Nike, Adidas, Mm Coca-Cola and others. And in the process of doing a lot of those sales and working with the brands, I I got to meet uh, a guy named Sergio Zeman, who at the time was chief marketing officer of the Coca-Cola company. And, uh, you know, kind of thinking back to my Saatchi days and thinking back to, gee, it'd be really interesting to actually work for a brand. Uh, and help them with their sports relationships, uh, and help them activate. But inside the brand itself, as opposed to an agency. So, as things evolved at uh, at uh, ISL, um, uh, ultimately I got sort of an opportunity to interview for. Um, uh, uh, the head of football, meaning soccer worldwide for Coca-Cola, which probably at the time was you know two to three hundred million dollar global investment around around football, uh, between the rights fees they paid, the local relationships with uh, the national leagues, uh, national federations, and then all the activation around the sport. It was really a really powerful huge for, for Coca-Cola and. Uh,
0: so uh, well, tr- I'll, come, I'll come back to that in a minute. I, I just okay. want to jump in for a second with one funny little story because uh, okay. I, when I was looking at Isel, I, I only later sort of realized, yeah, you were in, more in the IDF side of it. Actually, I was a true intern at the nineteen ninety three Stuttgart uh, IWF oh, event.
1: Great. <laughs> we so this was there then too. Yeah, I, I
0: somehow I spend, you we know a lot of time in Stuttgart, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I was there Louis just for a week or two probably for the actual event. Um, and I'm just blanking out on on the gentleman's name. He was uh, with ISL at that time um, who brought me in there, um, and I can't thank for that. Uh, I had a, the absolute blast. I was somewhat in the hospitality suite. That's, uh-huh. where, I met, that's where I met Papa, you know, uh, Papa Dyke uh, and I. We ended up working there yeah, together. Papa Dyke
1: was around that
0: time. Actually, he was
1: on my staff. He was one of the people working on the athletics program. His father was, you know, of um, one of the council members at the time and was from Senegal and was involved, obviously, in the federation.
0: Yeah, so Papa has been on the podcast as well, and we've dug deep into all those, some of those stories already. Um, but yeah, so this is, this is funny how, uh, what a small world, obviously, as I said, we didn't quite really cross paths there. But so uh, coming back, you know, so we were in Switzerland, having fun there, um, working in the, the world athletic space. Um, and now you off to Atlanta Georgia to coca-cola which you know arguably is the largest global sponsor in the world of sports on so many levels it probably still is till today unless I can think of someone else who may be out It's out uh, muscled in by now but uh, it's just a huge huge entity spending as you said million hundreds of millions of dollars in the world of sports and you're coming in there to manage their global football so again you're coming in from being on, a, on the on the ad agency side then you are you pitching and selling and now you're the client, which is, I'm sure, a very different sense and feel to it, right? Uh, you know, all of a sudden, everyone runs after you <laughs> because you got the money and you have the power. I mean, what's the big difference for you? I mean, how did you see this? You know, was it that dramatic as I, you know, what I describe it, or, or how would you describe it actually doing it?
1: Well, it was, it was pretty exciting. I, I um, when I came in. It was actually coincident with Coca-Cola renewing their relationship with FIFA. They've been a FIFA sponsor, I think from, from, you know, the thirties, yeah. same with the IOC sponsorship. they are really kind of one of the early adopters of sports sponsorship, so to speak. And obviously the, the rights uh, for sponsorship had evolved and, you know, Horst Dosser, what he'd set up with with the agency and ISL in the mid 80s and, and cr- creating exclusivities for for categories so that, you know, Pepsi couldn't also be a sponsor at the same time, Coca-Cola was a sponsor. Uh, and then creating the brand exposure with the boards around the field of play uh, tickets and hospitality. I mean, you know, the, those are sort of the basic programs. But, you know, as I as I came into Coca-Cola and was was working with uh, with uh, Chuck Fruit, who kind of headed up sort of all the all the the TV and and uh, relationships with with sports, uh, and also Scott McCune, who was who was my boss at the time. Yeah, you know, there was a sense that you know how how can we get more out of these sponsorship relationships, uh, in particular with FIFA, because that was the one we were renewing, and how can we create more. More touch points with consumers beyond just point of sale uh, and you know, using the brand of the of this of the event or the logo of the event. Um, and so as we were negotiating with with Coke, we came up sort of with, well, if we could get, um, you know, flag bearers, uh, player escorts and ball boys, you know, if we could get the opportunity to to have some of those those kids on the field of play during the game, that would be a really interesting promotional offer that we could have globally to mm-hmm. say, you are know, if you, if you buy, you know, X amount of Coca-Cola, you can then apply to, to have your son or daughter, uh, potentially be one of those flag bearers, escorts or ball boys and be out there during the game itself. Uh, so we negotiated kind of those extra rights, you know, beyond the, the basic, you know, board exposure, hospitality and tickets. Uh, and it became a really powerful tool, uh, for the global, uh, team at Coca-Cola to use at their point of sale and then their promotion. I mean, the, the Olympics is obviously a very important prestige brand for Coca-Cola to be associated with, but I will say that the World Cup in, in my view, is probably the most activated uh, sport on a global basis. If you're looking at, you know, 190, 200 countries around the world where Coca-Cola distributes, you know, I'd probably say you're looking at, you know, close to 150 of those countries are actively investing and leveraging that relationship and, you know, probably maybe 100 of them are using the opportunity to be one of those those kids on the field to play in their promotional efforts to, to get the moms and dads to get excited about having that that for their kid. and, and you know, Ultimately, it was a pretty complex thing to run where you're thinking about, you know, bringing a child from the USA or wherever and, and having them, you know, show up in a country and, and taking care of the child and making sure that everything goes well and they get back home safely. You know, that was a, that was a big undertaking for for the system. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the payoff around being able to use and have those assets was, was really important and valuable. So I learned a lot about you know how to activate uh, a brand around a sport how to create promotional promotional uh, components to that and to work with the agencies around the sort of bigger activation in terms of the advertising and marketing it was a, it was a great experience to be inside and understand kind of the value that a that a brand can have around the sports relationships, where you wouldn't necessarily be, be told that if you're working externally at an agency or uh, you know either a marketing agency or a sports uh, agency.
0: I, I can see that. I'm mean, I'm sure. Actually, you know what? When I graduated from university, my I, my vision always was to be. Sort of, sort of marketing director at coca-cola that was my big dream you know i never had thought i actually working in an agency or running an agency myself but it was always like coca-cola sounded like a fun place now here's a, a fun story a question for you um you know when I when I was in the U.S. and how I got into football was I was German, so football is my blood. Um, so yeah. I went up to a few people saying, "Look, I'm from Germany, and I probably know more about football than half your people in the office here." Or, um, I, you know, that's why you should hire me. Now, how you're an American, uh, you know, you've been in, you know, been at the Olympics. You, you did track and field, uh, which is you know big Olympic sport as well. How on earth did Coca-Cola hire you in football?
1: Um. You know, I think a lot of things in life happen because of relationships. So I I got (laughs) to know Sergio Zeman. You know, I was I was activating and managing the IAAF, but I really wanted to work on the brand side. And I negotiated a deal uh, with Zeman's involvement and Chuck Fruits' involvement to to renew a relationship with uh, with the IAAF World Athletics. Um, You know, as part of that process, we got to know each other. And, you know, so I kind of talked to him and said, hey, I'm interested in making a move. To be honest with you, we'd spent uh, five years in in Switzerland, 92 to 97. I'd gotten married during that time, or just a little bit before I got to ISL. I got married in 91, and uh, then my daughter was born in 96, Uh, so... You know, it was kind of interesting for us to maybe go back to the States. It wasn't that we didn't like Europe. We loved being here, but it was sort of fun because both of our parents, my wife's parents are in St. Louis. and My parents were down in the L.A. area to kind of now that we had a kid, it was probably nice to kind of be closer to the to our respective parents and spend some time so that we were a little bit closer with them. So it seemed like a, a good opportunity to kind of come back to the States and at the same time I could go work, you know, at, at sort of the, the biggest Sports brand in the world as it relates to you know sponsoring events, Coca Cola, and, and really see a sophisticated activation of those sports and, and learn a lot from the inside, which is exactly what
0: happened. Yeah, that's interesting. Now let's get into the the next block here. Um, in the the two thousands, of course, you know, internet is booming. We have you know .dot com boom and bust to some degree, and uh, and you had a little sh- fair share of that as well because you got into Ask Jeeves, which again, anyone who's old enough would remember that um the company there um so how did you jump into you know coca-cola or doing global football which you know again they sort of you could see with your you know all the roles you'd played previously made a lot of sense uh, all of a sudden you're in you're in a you know internet company at that time they wouldn't call it digital yet uh you know and, and you're, you're running there you, you are vice president of international business so how did that jump occur
1: So I'm in Atlanta working at Coca-Cola, and um, you know, to a certain extent, selling you know sugared water, carbonated sugared water, and um, and why I'm there, I I actually got you know a a fairly good internet connection at our house, and I started streaming sports events because there was this company called Quaka Sports. I don't know if you remember Quaka Sports, but it might date you they were streaming the america's cup they were streaming a bunch of climbing events uh and i can't even remember all the other things they streamed but they were like ahead of their time so unless you had a fairly good internet connection in your home there's no chance you wouldn't even be able to to leverage and use that they had all sorts of data and graphics integrated with their streaming so it made it really interesting i'm way ahead of their time way ahead of their time mm. uh, so this is probably 98 99 2000 and i'm talking to my friends if you remember in the late 90s you know you have amazon.com starting pets.com you know it was just the internet boom oh, i mean everything I, was just I, I taking off. <laughs> right. you know and i'm a, and i am a coke and you know things are fine and stable and it's a great big terrific company but it's you know it's it's is i'm talking to my friends and my colleagues that are the same age as me all so many of them are off to California, that's off to a, the Silicon Valley, you know, you
0: know place the
1: internet. I mean, it's just <laughs> like, you know, they're saying, you know, Claude, what are you doing sitting there, you know, selling sugar water? I, I, I was working on creating a website for some of our sports relationships, at Coke and doing some of that work, but not really working in technology and not really learning, you know, so to speak, the internet. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of felt like, well, that probably – Back to kind of this concept is you know you're always learning in life, and I, I kind of like the concept of ch- changing what you do periodically to kind of further round out your skill set. Hmm. It seemed you know in the late '90s, so like 1999, at the time I was considering the move, it seemed like well this is probably a good thing to go try and do. And uh, uh, I was I was actually skiing in Colorado, going down the slope, and you know mobile phones existed then. My phone's ringing, and I just pick it up, and there's this guy. Hi, I'm George, and uh, I'm interested in maybe I, I, I sent my resume out to a bunch of places. I I got your resume. It looks like he might be someone who could come help us with business development at Ask Jeeves. I didn't even know I didn't even know what Ask Jeeves was at the time. So <laughs> I uh, said, well, sure. I, that's really interesting, and I immediately kind of went to go find out what Ask Jeeves was, which ended up being you know one of the early search engines, like yes, you know, correct. Uh, and. Um, and so um you know, we talked it over. My wife and I, it sounded like it was a, a great place to be. It was gonna be in Los Angeles. They the headquarters fast cheese was up in uh in the Bay Area, but in Oakland actually, but but the international team and the international division was actually in uh in Santa Monica. Hmm. And again, my parents lived in the LA area or near LA in a town called Riverside where I grew up. Um and it just seemed like a, a, a good opportunity to kind of again learn something new. It seemed really topical. This was like you know this
0: was the thing to do. Everyone was jumping into the internet. So, so what was exactly the your role in there? I, I see a little bit about you. You helped raise some of the funding. Um, you launched, I guess, some of the the, the international uh, platforms, uh, UK, Japan. Um, so it was really a, obviously a, you know very different thing than you were doing before. Again, you just sort of jump into the deep end, I guess, with right?
1: yeah so so the the concept was yeah we wanted to build ask jeeves um it sort of subsidiaries that are country specific so an ask jeeves for latin america so a spanish-speaking ask jeeves and then an ask jeeves in the uk which mm. obviously took off really quickly because it was just relevant ask jeeves is like such a uk term yeah that's for uh, sure. ask jeeves australia uh and then we had uh uh, organizations that were investing capital, either private equity firms or others that were investing capital to kind of, you know, launch all these Ask Jeeves, localized Ask Jeeves um, websites to kind of provide search uh, solutions on a, on a regional or country language specific basis. And then we also had an Ask Jeeves search solution, which was basically something you could put at the time, websites were getting more and more sophisticated. If you remember in the earliest days of websites, you'd go to a website and you'd just have like an index and you'd click on the index and you'd kind of find things that way. But there's no, very few websites had a search box and you'd put in a, a word or a term and find what you needed on the website by just putting in the search query. That just didn't exist much back then. But all these sites were getting pretty big and sophisticated and complicated and just finding things through a, an index wasn't really that that achievable. And, and putting a search box on your website seemed to make a lot more sense. So hmm. I was also involved in, in helping sell that search solution to, to bigger websites that existed in the world. And and the very first sale we did for that software solution actually was to the IOC. I got a Rolex watch as the first salesman to sell the search solution and the IOC uh, The solution and put it on the IOC website. And and that was the beginning of, of the Astro search solution sales on a global basis to to a lot of other websites worldwide. But uh, it was a pretty exciting time, but it also was, my timing was probably really bad in the same sense, because probably soon after I got there, the, if you recall in the early 2000s, the internet crashed Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and the companies, you know, pets.com failed and there was one failure after another. And when I got to ask Jeeves, our stock, I think was probably at 30 or $40 a share. And probably in the course of three or four months that I was there, the stock had gone down to about 2 or $3 a share. And people oh, were wow. saying, oh, they're delisted and it's not going to even be on the stock exchange any longer. And there was this great sense like, Oh God, this is, this thing is going to collapse. And I mm-hmm. unfortunately got tasked with letting a lot of people go and it really wasn't a whole lot of fun, but I guess you'd learn from everything in life. And, you know, I, I sort of was, got pretty good at letting people go in a nice way. And and sometimes I just have meetings with people and be asking them questions about things and finding out how the business was going. And we'd finish the meeting and they'd leave and they'd come back 10 minutes later and they'd say, I was so worried I thought you were gonna fire me today. I said, no, no, I'm not <laughs> gonna I just became the guy that if Claude okay. wants to meet you might be let go. It's yeah, like right, a, okay. That's right. yeah. But uh but ultimately things prevailed with uh with Ash Sheaves. We we got a really good distribution deal, uh with Google, actually, where Google had just too much inventory, advertising inventory, so they actually were offloading some of their inventory onto the Jeep search results. So that really helped wow. kind of get the company stable again. The stock sort of came back up, and then Barry Diller with his corporation ended up acquiring the company. Um, I can't remember whether it was 2003, 2004, and then those sort of shares that I had that had you know slowly dwindled down to not be worth too much. Ultimately, were, were worth something, uh, and. Uh, And after the acquisition, you know, there were a lot of changes at the company. And uh, I think I was probably asked to leave or let go because they were kind of pursuing the same kind of strategy we've been pursuing before. So I found myself in a transitional moment and was kind of looking to see what I was going to do next.
0: Mm, Yeah. And that's where we are now. So we're now in 2003 here. Um, You know, you've been out there um, doing things for almost 20 years already at that point in time. And from the looks at it, at least, you know, you sort of now... You know, you co-founding uh, the new the new company here again. It's a big partnership. Um, private equity money involved? Uh, you know, maybe I don't know whether that private equity money is someone you work with at Ask G's as well, or, or how did that all come about? How did Universal Sports Cable and Digital Network come about? So, um, one of my
1: colleagues that I worked with at uh, ISL, a guy named Tom Hipkins, uh, who had been general counsel at ISL. Um, he had found his way to San Diego. I don't think he was, uh, working at the time. Um, and, um, so he and I kind of got reacquainted or got together and, you know, I was sort of thinking about things that could be done in the USA and, you know, thinking about technology, thinking about streaming, what I'd seen on Quaka sports. And I said to him, you know, I'd spent five years in Europe, um, and I got used to being able to watch, you know, the ski season you know, the FIS ski season and all the races that you can see across the season of skiing. And I got used to seeing, you know, a season of, of, of you know, all these Olympic sports that were fairly typical in uh, in Europe. You know, they were all produced and they were all actively watched uh, uh, in Europe. You know, the seasons were all produced across gymnastics and track and field and swimming. But, you know, most Americans thought, you know, Michael Phelps, you know, swam every four years at the Olympic Games and then he just went, you know. <laughs> just hung out and didn't do much in between. But, you know, obviously all these athletes have to stay tuned up and compete and be at the highest level on an ongoing basis. And he was competing in all sorts of events that FINA were putting on their world championships and their World Cup seasons. And so I kind of looked at the landscape while NBC was obviously the Olympic sponsor and was deeply embedded in the Olympic Games themselves. There really wasn't any kind of cable broadcaster or streaming opportunity to see these seasons of Olympic sports. You You know, they were already being produced in Europe and being distributed by a lot of the broadcasters across Europe. So it wasn't like you had to go out and pay to produce these events. The stream, you know, live feed existed. The product was there, so, yeah. so conceptually, you know, Tom and I said, well, let's put a business plan together that says we're going to create, you know, a specialty channel focused on all the Olympic sports, you know, because, you know, there's obviously exciting Uh, American athletes that would interest, you know, viewers in the USA, they're exciting international athletes that would interest viewers too. Uh, This is all produced. So other than just acquiring the rights, it shouldn't be too complicated and getting a feed into the USA, which shouldn't be too complicated either. So, (laughs) so we kind of said, well, let's, let's go do it. And, uh, you know, he and I both put probably um, a couple well, maybe 100,000 each into a bank account and just started spending our money, you know, trying to basically the, the gold initially, probably in 2004, 2005, was just acquiring rights. You know, could we even right. go to these federations and get them to even sell to us? I mean, here we are like two guys, you know, who are you two? I mean, you know, should we trust to sell, you know, our rights to you for the USA marketplace? But, you know, there weren't a lot of broadcasters or others that were that interested for a lot of these sports to even acquire these rights. Okay, And for those that did acquire the rights, they probably just wanted them for certain events and wouldn't really show that many hours of the event itself anyway. So that right. even if you did get to see it, it probably was just a, a highlight, delayed, never live. Um, so... we started knocking on the doors of the federations and talking to them about our concept you know we both had some experience working in the in the international sports space already having been at isl and coca-cola for me so we had some credibility so it wasn't like we didn't have credibility when we walked in the door and you know ultimately um i remember the day it was probably sometime in 2005 in 2005 we um uh were in, in Switzerland with the International Gymnastics Federation negotiating a rights deal with them for uh for um <clears throat> probably three, four or five years and it was probably like, you know, you know, quite a bit of money at the time, four or five hundred thousand dollars, six hundred thousand dollars. And we didn't even have anything close to that in the bank, but you know, we certainly had, had the ability to to sell this into the Federation and, and they signed a deal with us. And I remember, you know, we signed the contract and you know, Tom and I are on the train back to, to Lausanne from meeting with the Federation. And uh, we both kind of looked at each other and we, said, we kind of said, well, we're all in now. <laughs> you know, no turning back. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's the, nice I know that feeling.
0: A whole <laughs> lot of that money times.
1: And, you know, we didn't have that kind of capital to even make the thing happen. But we just felt, you know, we had to, as we'd been talking concurrently to investors about the business, they all said, yeah, sounds like a really interesting concept, makes sense, could probably work, but, you know, what rights do you have? And we'd say, well, we're, we're negotiating those rights. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. they'd all say, well, come back to us when you have, you know, rights with 10 sports or come back to us when you have rights with 15 sports, whatever it might be. But there was always this sense of "Show us that you actually have the content, then we'll be more comfortable investing with you guys. It wasn't about creating a product. Meaning, you know, some technology product was about just creating the content so that you could then distribute that in the, the domestic USA.
0: See, you have to do a little bit of bluffing here and there. I get that. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's
1: that's what, what you do. Business, exactly. But I mean, look, it wasn't like we didn't believe we couldn't do it. We knew we could do yeah. it, but we just had to go get these rights and put up, you know, a fair amount of uh, commitments. You know, we didn't have the capital yet, but we made the commitments to, to basically buy those rights. at, You know, right. a, a reasonable number, certainly a bigger number than than any of these federations have been offered before or offered at all from yeah. distributors in the USA marketplace. And for all of them, it was a win-win because one, they were getting some capital, and two, they were getting exposure that they'd never had in the domestic USA before, both for their brand sponsors of the federation and for for their fans. So I think you know so, everybody was pretty excited. So how, did you,
0: about how did you get from the idea, which is... I fully get it. Um, and anyone who has ever done a, a startup like this in terms of, you know, trying to buy rides and it, whether you're building a channel or whether you're building a distribution on the back of it, um, how do you get from that actually then having a channel and obviously bringing in NBC and others uh, to the vision? You know, what's the step there, the short version of that?
1: Well, you go through a
0: lot of stress. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, for sure. As one,
1: one, one person we were meeting with at the time, uh, and I think he sort of said it well, he says, You'll have the worst day of your life and the best day of your life all in the same day. It's yep. just, you know, you just, you know, there's always some new thing that comes up and I'm working with a lot of startup companies now in my new venture, Ubiquity Sports and, and a lot of the founders and, and, I, and I see what they're going through. They're trying to run their business, startup. They're trying to hire all the right people so they can run their business. And at the same time, they're trying to secure capital so they can run their business uh, and, you know, and build a product, by the way, that's going to be successful to, to make their business work. Um, and you're juggling all these balls at the same time. And, you know, you don't always have good results, you know, concurrently. You rarely do. There's always something that went right that day, but something else didn't go right that day. For so sure. so there's you know, there's. But, you know, it's kind of an exciting stress, to be honest with you. It's kind of like the high when you go running and you feel good after you really went through some pain through a a hard run or a hard bike ride. You know, they get that endorphin rush, so to speak. So I kind of feel that way with startups. It's just, you know, I I feel that that's kind of exciting parts about life. How can you create something new and different and products that's going to really make people excited and happy uh, on a global basis or on a domestic basis in the case of uh, universal sports? Um,
0: So. So oh, they yep. come in or or and you know I see you raised a hundred million dollars. I mean these are all fairly significant numbers, um, even with all the great background both of you guys had. So how do you get people to come in and, and spend that money with you and, and and really believe in your story here? Well, at first you get angel investors. So we talked to friends and family and others,
1: you know, uh, sort of like Jeff Bezos when he was out starting his venture, went to his parents and got some money there. And, you know, so we got some initial along with I mean, I, I, the one thing that I remember going to the the private equity guys, they were all sort of like, going, well, you are you guys really committed to this? You're going to stick with this. And I always would use. I would always say, well, I actually sold my house and used the money from my house sale and invested in my company and they all all said, great, you've got stake in the game. I know you're going to make sure (laughs) this works. So that was always a good thing to let them know. But, you know, so we got some angels to come in and, you know, every time you get some money and you think, oh, that's going to last me forever. And then, you know, a month goes by and like, we got to get more money. It just goes so fast sometimes, but ultimately – yeah, we, we we were talking to some some early stage investors, and there was a company called Providence Equity Ventures up in uh, in the Boston area. They've done a lot more work, sort of in the health industry. But a guy named Mike Hirschland um, took sort of in, interest in us. Uh, we met with a lot of their partners, talked to them about the concept, and and ultimately, we I think they put in probably you know quite a few million just to start and you know that was for us like a you know a fortune where before we were getting sort of fifty, hundred dollars 100000 investments from different angel investments this was like well, we thought we'd have more money for years of course didn't mm-hmm. last very long at the time but but it really helped us kind of turn the corner and build some legitimacy in the business and then we were spending a lot of time trying to build strategic relationships with organizations in particular NBC and NBC Sports, Dick Ebersole was running at the time and Gary Zenkel was running the whole uh, Olympic part of the business so we'd spent some time meeting with them and talking to them about the concept. We met with ESPN and talked to them about what we were trying to do. We talked to Eurosport uh, because maybe they'd want to invest to kind of an extension of what Eurosport was already doing in Europe. So we tried to see, you know, what kind of strategic partners could we bring in besides capital? Um, And, um, you know, NBC kind of was interested, but not that interested. Um, I I think they felt this was a space they wanted to be in, but probably didn't want to necessarily invest in it per se. Uh, but then we got to a point probably in 2007, uh, we'd launched kind of a streaming product. We were already distributing some of the content. We'd had the track and field world championships on the platform uh, that we distributed both on TV and streaming. And what was had, it
0: called at the beginning? What was the original name? original oh. name
1: was called World Championship Sports Network, WCSN. Okay. Uh, so up until probably 2008, that was the name. Um, and then we got, uh, a group of people, um, called intermedia partners, uh, a guy named Leo Hendry, uh, who'd done a lot of work in the cable industry and, uh, another individual named Peter Kern. Uh, we met with Peter and his, and his team. And and talked to them about the concept they were had just started a fund uh, and invested in a whole bunch of companies including vice if you're familiar with vice Um, was one of their early investments and um, so they they took a liking to us and and decided to to invest they you know at that point in time that was kind of the inflection point for Tom and I as the founders where we had to raise so much capital we couldn't maintain a a majority control of the company Hmm. uh, which unfortunate, but it's just, you know, when you're trying to create a cable venture beyond just a streaming venture, they're just fairly capital intensive in terms of the infrastructure and things you have to do to be able to distribute on a global basis through the cable industry. So we got a really significant investment from Intermedia Partners, it was was much appreciated. And I think at the same time, when that happened, I think NBC realized we weren't necessarily going to go away. Uh, As we were leading up to that investment in 2008. other individuals and organizations were looking at what we were doing in terms of creating this Olympic sports destination in the USA, and uh, kind of liking our idea. So we had some people kind of replicating what we were trying to do, which wasn't necessarily helpful at the time. Hmm. Uh, Peter Roth decided to launch sort of an Olympic channel, uh, and was using uh, an effort, uh, I think, working with Comcast or Discovery to try and you know, create a, an Olympic channel that the US Olympic Committee would be involved with. I think Peter was leading USOC at the time. Right. Uh, and at the same time, Casey Wasserman, who now heads up the whole effort for LA twenty eight, he decided to invest in some of the content rights that we have because he thought maybe he should do the same thing. So he uh, as a result of those things, you know, the 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 rights marketplace, you know, the agents were super happy, the federation's super happy because suddenly you have sort of three organizations trying to acquire rights for Olympic sports at the same time where we had been the only until then. Uh, so that pushed some of the price points really high which made it pretty difficult for us to compete. And in some cases we just passed because we thought the prices were just outrageously too high. And you weren't really going to be able to make a business around that. And, and ultimately, um, you know, what saved us was, uh, I think, the investment from Intermedia and then and NBC ultimately seeing us as sort of the horse they wanted to tie themselves to, uh, so we created a partnership with with the help from the team at Intermedia with with uh, NBC Sports, NBC Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, and they then gave us a lot of distribution across uh, some of the bandwidth they had with the main broadcast uh, networks in a lot of the key markets globally, sorry, domestically in the USA. Uh, which really then got our channel distributed to, to a lot of homes across the USA, and and really helped us significantly to kind of build up the the business.
0: Was the platform only available in the U.S. or you had global certain global rights as well, or certain global ambitions?
1: I think we had on some of the deals we did. They just at the time, you know, two thousand five, six, seven, eight, nine. I mean, there wasn't much. You know, a lot of these federations didn't see a lot of value in their streaming rights. It wasn't something that that was important or necessary to keep. So I think for a a lot of the cases, we got global rights. uh, But the main push and at the time, we felt the, the biggest return on the investment Uh, The biggest opportunity would be to build a a really powerful cable channel that would distribute to 80 million, 70 million, 50, 60 million homes in the USA through cable TV and maybe Mm. have some streaming offerings domestically and internationally. But but the real value driver was to have a really powerful cable offering uh, in the domestic USA.
0: Right. So just to wrap that uh, you know part up here, and it's in you know what we're talking about right now. That's almost seven or eight years, obviously, a journey here. This isn't something which has happened over a few years. So it's a clearly a long, nice journey there for your, uh, as an entrepreneur, in a sense. Um, what was the exit then? You it, you sold out? Um, it was taken over by someone, or what, what, what happened there? Just the final part to the story here.
1: Well, actually, uh, our <clears throat> as Tom and I had lost control of the business um uh, uh i brought in um an, another person named carlos silva who came in he uh <clears throat> been working on on digital stuff out of washington dc he sort of became the, the chief operating officer i was ceo and then I think, you know, our, our investors felt they needed a change at the top. So actually, they showed up one day at our offices in, in L.A., Santa Monica, and said, well, we're going to change things at the top. Even though you're the founders, you can still kind of be around, but we want someone else to run the business. Uh, I think maybe that was driven in part by NBC, too, uh, but probably mm-hmm. a different view on strategy. So, um So Carlos and I were shown the door, so to speak, which is fine. I mean, you know, I felt we built a good business and an interesting opportunity for consumers in the domestic USA. It was always great to to be in an elevator wearing a universal sports branded jacket and have someone come up to you and said, oh, I love your channel. I got to see the whole ski season. You made me so happy. And those are the kind of things that really make you feel good when you know you're touching consumers uh, in a way that they haven't been touched before. Uh, So. Some new management was brought in to, to run the channel. Uh, I stayed on as chairman, okay. uh, which was fine. I wasn't running the day-to-day. I was non-exec. Uh, I was providing some oversight and, and some some thoughts on, on kind of how things can be done and the relationship with the rights holders. Uh, but for me, it wasn't kind of a full-time thing and wasn't something I wanted to continue doing. And then, you know, again, Headhunter called um, and uh, was interested, and they were trying to fill a role uh, to have someone – quote, run sports at Google and YouTube. And, you know, Google and YouTube hadn't really done a whole lot in sports. Certainly Google on the product side weren't mm-hmm. doing a whole lot in sports. And then YouTube had a lot of sports content on their platform. You know, almost 100% of it was uploaded by third parties, individuals who were just, just uploading stuff that they'd, you know, taken off the TV and put up on the yeah. platform.
0: Not supposed Copy to be either for- yeah,
1: right. It was basically <laughs> copyright infringement. Exactly. <laughs> right. was
0: exactly.
1: What it so, yeah, I went through a process, met a whole bunch of people at, uh, at Google. The Google interview process is pretty lengthy, you know, and, uh, you know, went through a, a few days of interviews and a lot of interesting questions and talked a lot about kind of my vision around streaming and, and how YouTube could evolve. And I think, you know, sort of hit it off with the, the team there and uh, was offered a position to, to start uh on my birthday, the 10th of January, 2011. So that was yep. um, an interesting start date. So happy birthday. And off I Definitely. Went
0: to how did it feel? I mean, you know, again, the last seven or eight years, you were your own boss to some degree. I mean, obviously, you had large investors in, so you're not really always your own boss anymore <laughs> when that happens. Um, but now you're back into a very large company. I mean, you know, never mind how big Google is now. But even at that time, Google was already, you know, a fairly substantial company growing like crazy and, and, of course, dominating its space or in the process of dominating it. I mean, there must have been an interesting, uh, again, is there a culture shock there to to get into sort of this sort of Silicon Valley company now or how did it feel? Well, having been at Ask Jeeves and always sort of admiring Google as a better
1: search engine and right, a better I company, guess, yeah. so to speak, it was always sort of like, well, that'd be a cool place to work. But at the time with my sports experience and maybe some of my BD experience at G's, I probably could have applied to try and work there, but it just didn't kind of pass my mind at the time. But then, you know, it evolved at Google with their acquisition of YouTube in 2006, I think they realized they probably needed to be more professional on the sports side of things, along with a lot of the other content verticals they had, you know, news, you know, entertainment, things like that. So they brought in sort of specialists in the field. It was just sort of good timing and a good place for me. Obviously a really great company. You know, it was probably there were probably about thirty thousand employees at the time I started there. There's probably double or triple that by now, but you know, just a massive growth engine as an organization. But you know, between you know what you know, Larry Page and Sergey created and, and Eric Schmidt as, uh, as the chairman, it was just, you know, an amazing, exciting place to go work at. That was just a lot of a nice fun transition. Uh, and for me, it, it didn't feel like a big, complex organization, though it was. Uh, it just was for me. I was doing another startup within YouTube to try and create, you know, a sports team to right. try and find a way to get, get, you know, rights holders, you know, soccer and all the other Olympic sports and then the main sports in the USA, baseball, basketball, football, uh, onto the platform because most of them, you know, wanted to have nothing to do with the platform, in fact they wanted to sue the platform and and stop them and take down all this content that was sitting on the platform because they felt it infringed their copyright. So So,
0: the, so that, that probably oh, your, your legal background helped a bit there. Uh, so how did you convince them? How did you convince the FIFA's, the IOC's, UEFA, NFL's, and you know, EPL, etc.? How do you convince these guys that, hey, you can trust us, we can monitor, we can match it up, we can even pay you some money, we put ad dollars around it? How did that all come about? Was that, you know, did you do some of that during your time there?
1: A hundred percent. I think I probably, um, with my team, I, I you know, the first thing it was sort of hire a global team, you know, across YouTube and Google. So we hired people that were headquartered in the UK. Then we had country specific people that were seconded to us part-time to do sports, you know, across Europe and India and Asia, uh, and then in the USA and Latin America. Um, and then we said, you know, how can we create legitimacy on the, on the YouTube platform to get Sports rights holders to feel like this is a safe haven for their content and it's a place they should put their content as opposed to a place they should stop having content put on. Um, So we looked at the world of sport and we all said to each other, well, what's the world's biggest sport? Well, that's soccer, football. So we need to we need to win with football first. And if we can win with football first, we think everything else will follow because we'll show legitimacy for the platform and create a great uh, uh, an opportunity for these rights holders to to feel that this is a safe place for their content. So started meeting with a lot of the agencies and uh the rights holders themselves uh to get them to put football content on the platform. You know, went to go meet with Richard Scudamore who was heading up the English Premier League at the time. Uh uh met with Andrea Rozzini, who is now running Eleven Sports. And uh, he was sort of representing the Italian football league at the time, in a Serie A. And we just sat down and started talking to them. And, you know, frankly, these early meetings I would have, I'd, they'd, they'd sit down with me and I'd get the big hand in my face and say, we're <laughs> super unhappy with your platform. You guys are pirates, you're copyright infringers. We want nothing to do with this. The only reason I'm having this meeting is to tell you about how unhappy I am about YouTube and you've got to do something about this. Right. And then, you know, I'd kind of leave the meeting going, ah, it didn't go so well. And then, you know, the next day, you know, you know, they would be in the press that, you know, I met with such and such sports lead. And, you know, they were using my meeting with them not to not to criticize me, so to speak, in the press, but to get all the broadcasters scared that suddenly Google's now going to buy sports rights with we <laughs> okay. to start doing at that point in time. Right. Uh, You've seen some of that happening now with Amazon and a little bit with Google but and YouTube, but it takes a long time to get those large organizations comfortable with those kind of investments. But in any case, ultimately uh, the developers at Google, the developers at, at YouTube you know had created a product called Content ID. Mm-hmm. and Content ID allowed a rights holder to either track, block or monetize any uploaded content uh that existed uh on our platform. Basically those rights holders had to give us reference material. So if they had the English Premier League had a live event, you know, we'd get a copy of that live event in real time plugged into our our, our servers. The server would index all of that and understand what that event looks like. So then if if you uploaded that that game onto your YouTube channel Right after the event, you might start getting a lot of views on that clip or highlight that you put up there, or even the whole game. But yeah. but now, now the rights holder could identify all that in the right. content management system, and then decide whether they wanted to block it, uh, right. track it, or monetize it. So so that product really kind of you know broke the dam, so to speak, to allow rights holders to realize you know they were in full control, uh, about th- what was happening on the YouTube platform, and it's ultimately they, they that control allowed them to feel comfortable to now put. The content onto the platform and, and for some of the big rights holders sure we had to, to give some maybe upfront guarantees against the revenue they would make uh, against the, the content on the platform, but we weren't really okay. in the in the position or interested in paying rights fees, so to speak. It was more a guarantee against future revenues and the advertising revenues they would get Almost against,
0: like them. a rev share model. Then, in a sense, right? exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, okay. Interesting. I mean, I do recall those days. Obviously, we we all we were representing certain rights holders there as well, um, and we always similar. in those early early days, it was a lot of battles with YouTube of you know how you track it and how you pull things down and. People had to make phone calls and chase folks. You know, obviously now that's mostly automated, and you know it runs fairly smooth. So, but uh, yeah, the early days were fun. Now you did some uh, interesting work with the IOC then, right? Because uh, 212 and the 2014 Olympics, um, you, you know, you was some of an official partner, if I recall, this correctly right.
1: Yeah, what we were starting to see on the on the YouTube platform that if you we were doing. Uh, 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 Indian Premier League Cricket live on the platform and you were seeing the channels that were streaming those live events were getting a huge bump in subscribers. And, you know, at YouTube, it's about how many subscribers you have. If you have subscribers, they get notified about when you have new content on the platform, you get a lot more viewing of your content. Hmm. So subscribers were an important metric for YouTube channels. And live content on a, on a channel was really driving up the subscriber base. And the IOC, Timo Lume and the team at the IOC, I think weren't having a lot of success or weren't happy with the distribution they were getting in some key markets across Africa and Asia uh, for those two Olympic Games and and basically came to us and said, well, would you be interested in, in, in streaming? Those events on YouTube uh, into those markets, geo blocked to those markets, but you know mm. at least having those markets an opportunity to view this uh, through a streaming platform uh, in those markets, and we were super excited about that. And again, it helped kind of reinforce the value of live from my from my view and my team's view. Mm. So we negotiated for those rights, and you know I think you know coming out of those two events, the IOC saw a huge bump in their subscriber base. It really you know, also helped me internally to to fight for for live content on the platform. If you remember, you know, YouTube was mostly about highlights and there yep. wasn't necessarily a strong understanding or motivation to have live sports rights on, on the YouTube platform. It wasn't necessarily something that was in the mindset of a lot of the founders of, of Google or or really kind of in their core interest area. But I felt it was a, a key driver for the platform and a key driver for the channel. So, you know, we tried to look at where, where could we get other live content on the platform? And, you know, kind of one of the biggest events we did, it was really, really the work of the person who runs uh, YouTube and Google Sports now, a guy named Tim Katz. He kind of uh, keyed up on this whole Red Bull Stratos jump. Uh, if you remember that taking place in you know October of 2012. Um, where, where, uh, Felix Bumgara jumped from space, you know, and, and back right. down to earth, you know, it was yeah. a, a really, really big deal live event. So we, we became the streaming and distribution partner for Red Bull of this event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, uh, it, was just a, an amazing experience because, uh, and I'm sure you've been to Sporttel a few times, but it took place during Sportell, 14th of October, and I remember sitting on my hotel room bed at the Fairmont Hotel, looking out at the ocean, and and on a Google Hangout with you know probably 30 people, the engineers, Tim, and all sorts of other people, you know, basically monitoring, you know, the the Red Bull Stratos jump as as went higher and higher into space, and we sort of planned to have maybe. Th- three, two to three million live concurrents watching this thing at the same time. And we figured we could manage that load. And he's like halfway up to, to as high as he has to go. And we're already at three million live concurrents. And I kind of, you know, go out to the group and say like, well, isn't this the total number we planned for? It's just going to be okay. We're not going to just crash, are we? And everyone kind of looks at me and they go... Well, we really don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that doesn't sound too good. So what was the
0: total at the end?
1: It's going to go to black. I don't think that's a good good experience for anybody, particularly for our brand and for YouTube and for Google. So – the engineers are working frantically behind the scenes to offload a lot, of the, a lot of the load onto other platforms and to kind of make sure we could handle this and not necessarily streaming it all in HD. And, okay. you know, we, I think we got up to somewhere around 9 million live concurrents by yeah. the end of it, which is wow. I think even today, the biggest live concurrent event in the history of, of, of the web, I could be wrong, but I think at least back then it was, and it probably still is today. And. You know, it was a great success and also I think re- re- reaffirmed sort of the value, again, of, of live content and being able to have, you know, this 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 event streamed on a global basis and having people in every market and every country be able to see it. Because, it, you know, it wasn't just about country-specific distribution or regional distribution. It was about global distribution. And that's really what I think strengthened us at the time to kind of get people to adopt and be involved in
0: Before we go on to the next one here, really, I I wanted to ask a question in in sort of if you're thinking, you know, if you look at what Google and and, and YouTube, of course, is doing right now uh, and where the world of uh, live sports is heading, you know, what do you think right now? What's your best guess, having worked there, of course, for several years and and knowing the the inside sentiments? um, Where do you see Google eventually coming in there as a Uh, You know, rights, you know, acquiring rights and putting real serious money on the table? Or you just think that's not their mentality and they're never going to do it?
1: Well, I think even at the time I was there, we were seriously trying to bid for some major sports rights. Um, You know, we've gotten approval to go out and bid for some major sports rights um, um, uh, when I was at YouTube, and we we made a, a pretty strong effort to do that. And, you know, I was pushing, obviously, YouTube was. Advertising based revenue and I was saying let's do subscription based revenue have tool revenue streams You could even still have advertising on the subscription product right. You know, I was really trying to, to move the sports offering the live sports offering to subscription So we had a couple opportunities to get some some major events at the time that ultimately didn't didn't win the bid uh, Which was unfortunate, but I think you know coming out of that um maybe the the speed to market for you know acquiring live sports rights and the amount of capital needed for some of these sports rights, which was really substantial based mm-hmm. on the experience and how much revenue the platform was making, I think probably made it a little bit prohibitive but I think you know things. I think what I've learned is things always sort of happen a little slower than you think they're going to happen and I think that you've seen you know YouTube now and certainly Amazon, Charlie Neiman, who'd been on our team at YouTube, is now running a lot of the sports effort out of Amazon in Seattle. You know, you're trying to see them, I described as sort of taking tastes of different types of sports opportunities around football, around tennis. And I think, you know, it's all part of learning the platforms. You know, there's no reason to make a massive, you know, multiple hundred million or billion dollar investment. You know, let's learn with a slightly lower investment. But I think inevitably, you know, back to my point, you, you're a global distributor if you're Amazon, yeah, uh, if you're if you're YouTube, and, and frankly, even if you're Apple, if you're even Netflix, even though Netflix has said they're not going to do live sports, and you're certainly seeing a lot of this with the Zone anyway. Um, they're acquiring a lot of sports rights and streaming those on a sufficient basis, market yeah. by market. And I think they just launched their global offering too for the for, for their yeah. boxing. clubs yeah, so, and right. So I think yeah, direct to consumer OTT is definitely gonna is not going to go away. I mean, I think you'll see some of the broadcasters jump into the space more aggressively in their local markets, so that you kind of have an opportunity to, to look at this on your connected TV. I mean, I probably spend most of my time when I watch sports content now just through a streaming experience. I mean, the, the Augusta Masters just took place. Uh, last weekend and through Thursday and Friday also and yeah I'm I'm looking at all of that on a a streaming platform versus you know a broadcaster I don't even think there is a broadcaster that shows it here in in domestic Switzerland Uh, but I think you know you'll continue to see these platforms that have global distribution I mean look at the subscriber base that Netflix has now. I think they're up to 200 million global subscribers you know that's that's a lot of revenue when you're looking at you know 10, 12 15 dollars a month per subscriber you know that's a solid foundation uh, for any platform and I I think you know sports is a huge driver uh, uh it became you know i remember rupert murdoch had said years ago you know we see sports as the battering ram for our business to grow fox in the usa yeah. and, you know and that became you know a huge driver for them when they finally got a Fox sports deal uh, with with the nfl and were distributing nfl content on their platform that legitimized them and you know i think that for any major platform having live sports content really is hugely important and we'll continue to to grow with those platforms I've mentioned. But I think also for some of the smaller what I describe as a niche sport and not not saying that in a pejorative way or negative way. But if you're skiing, you're not necessarily going to have a strong global audience like football has. Uh, but you have a really powerful, interested audience who loves that sport and would love to see that sport and probably not And then probably underserved. So if you're a federation like that and you can't get the broadcasters to, to pony up capital or to give you the, enough of their time slots to really you know, show the content appropriately in, in, in the local markets. You know, why not go direct to consumer and build a, a platform and an offering that's direct to consumer that, you know, is on a subscription basis and expand that to create a sort of a lifestyle destination around that create merchandising, create, you know, opportunities for endemic advertisers and brands to sell into that because, you know, you've got a known skiing audiences will be interested in buying skis and poles and boots and clothing. Absolutely. And then in addition to that, build a build a coaching, training, learning platform around that so that people can actually, you know, actually, you know develop their skills in the sport itself. So I think a rich ecosystem like that is is certainly a way forward. There's some investment required on the front end, so maybe you're not going to get an immediate return on your investment in the first 12 or 24 months. But if someone takes a longer-term view, I think that's directionally where those sports should be going.
0: Here's a question, and and it, some of the what we just talked about already leads perfectly into, of course, uh, where you spent your last sort of four or five years uh, with Wanda Sports there, um, and, and the role you had there. But uh, before we jump in there, I, I actually want to ask you a question because the way I look at it, um, again from a broadcast point of view, um, a traditional of so the traditional it's called a it pay TV pay operators, uh, they needed the content because it drives it brings the audience to them. Now the YouTubes, the Googles, the you know Facebooks, um, Amazon, they don't need the they have the audience already right? They have billions of you know users in some fashion already globally. Um, so the, in my mind, there is a difference of a, you know of who needs who more. Um uh, to some degree, you know, the sport of course wants to talk to those billions of followers on YouTube and, and, and yep. Facebook, versus of course, um, you know, you know, the B Sky B needs that content to drive and continuously have those users to come to the platform. Yep. What's your view on that?
1: Well, if you're a broadcaster, I think your main your main focus and your main need is to basically satisfy your advertisers, right? Isn't that kind of what you've got to focus on? You need to have a good offering for your advertisers. And it's getting a large audience for those advertisers. It's critically important, but you really don't care a whole lot about, um, you know, the viewership. You're not going to really care, you know, who those viewers are. You're not going to, you know, try and reinforce and help those viewers and have a direct relationship with those viewers. It's really about, Getting a lot of viewership and then getting an advertiser to, you know, feel that this has been a really successful event because lots of people watch that. Maybe fifty percent of those people actually cared about the ad, and you don't know what fifty percent that is. But you got enough viewership to justify your advertisement investment. And you got a return on your investment based on whatever CPM you pay. So, you know, that's kind of the broadcaster mentality, and that's how broadcasters work. Yeah, in the uh, free-to-air
0: again, world, right? But I mean, the pay the world is all different, right? Yeah.
1: But you know, again, if if you're able to go direct to the consumer and have a streaming experience, I think then that kind of reinforces. Uh for a federation the opportunity to build a subscriber relationship. You know, you talk about personalization and using data and information about how users use your platform, consume content and and basically feeding up to them things that are, you know, relevant to their user experience. I mean, you'll certainly see that if you spend any time on YouTube, you know, basically in your in your feed, it's going to reinforce the stuff you've been most recently watching on YouTube and it's going to assume the artificial intelligence is going to assume you're probably interested in seeing. If you happen to watch a lot of golf, it'll assume you're going to be interested in seeing more golf. Or if you watch surfing, you want to see more surfing. So it's going to serve up something that's relevant to you and then get you to watch even more. Uh, and I think that's that's kind of what users, a millennial and other young users, are kind of expecting now from from a, from a, from, a, from the experience when you're watching a sport. They want to kind of see more, and they probably not necessarily wanting to see lots more. Live, but they'd like to see a highlight that takes less time. It kind of shows the key athlete or the key events that took place during a sporting event. Uh, You're seeing more and more consumption of highlights than you have in the past. It's up a huge percent. Uh, And a lot of that's just due to time constraints. You're on a mobile device most of the time and you're going to look at something. You're not going to watch a two or three hour event just on your mobile device, but you're certainly happy to watch a five or 10 minute highlight summary uh, of some of the key moments.
0: Now, again, the question was a bit in the direction of, do you think that, uh, A, the the money coming out of being able to be generated through YouTube, um, and right now, as you already said already, it's really a ref share model, right? It's not, we don't, we're paying lots of upfront money, but we'll forecast either on maybe what advertising dollars we can generate, and then we'll give you, of course, a portion of that. Um, And Facebook, I guess, is similar, right? It's all ad driven, really. Um, So, do you believe that the ref share model, right? Let's say even as large as the audience is on YouTube and on Facebook, yes. etc., can yes. that really ever replace the traditional pay model, right? From a pay broadcaster uh, paying, you know, hard dollars, you know, upfront, which is an arbitrage model, right? Completely different model than a, than a revenue model, revenue share model. Do you really think that the, the numbers can be stacking up, um, you know, for rights holders? Probably not. I think
1: it, you know, unless unless You know, the YouTubes and the Amazons of the world become, you know, rights buyers outright as opposed to offering the reps, just being on a rep share model. I think in some cases they are doing that and they'll probably be more bullish about doing that. as they build a subscription model around their offerings obviously amazon prime video is a quote and subscription model is part of your prime relationship so there is a fee you're paying to kind of have access to that on a monthly or annualized basis and and certainly youtube has a sort of a me too cable offering is on, on subscriber basis and i think you can subscribe now to youtube and be ads free so so i think as those revenue streams start evolving and then you can then get, you know, a percentage of both the subscriber revenue and an advertising revenue, you're probably getting closer to parity at that point. So I think there's opportunities there. And I also think, you know, back to, you know, going direct to your to, to subscriber and build a subscriber base. If you, you know, back to skiing or equestrian, because I sit on an equestrian channel on their board, you know, on a global basis, there's multi-millions of people that are interested in those sports. And if you can appropriately attract, those people to subscribe at a reasonable price because they're underserved anyway, and have enough of the season of that sport along with other content that's relevant to them—be it coaching, training, learning content, or or endemic uh, brand content that you you're going know, to make you know a purchase conversion on. I think those can be you know can take the place of what you're getting now from broadcasters, and in a lot of cases the broadcasters. Are going to be more narrow, and what they're going to spend money on, you know, it's going to be about driving that big advertising rating, and you know, what's going to do that? There's not a lot of sports that are going to do that for them, other than soccer, and then the USA across, you know, American football, baseball, basketball, maybe a few other sports.
0: Yeah, true. Uh, I have recently had a couple of really interesting conversations with with the world of esports, right? Which, again, if you look at the streamers in that space, um, you know, there there are kids who make a lot of money streaming content, right? Um, you know, and that, and that is obviously driven by the advertising dollars, uh, or ad dollars, or ad ref share side of it. What's the model in Google? Is there a fixed model of how the revenue share is done as a percentage, as fifty-fifty or whatever, in what favor, or is it really completely depending on the the rights holder or or, or the circumstances? How does that create it? Do you can you share? No, some? I think
1: I think in almost all cases it's a fixed ref share uh, between the rights holder and Google YouTube, uh, in terms of, you know, the content that's on their platform. So yes, I mean, and, and in some cases the rights holder might have their own brand advertising they want to put up against, uh, the stream. If you're familiar with, with YouTube, you know, there's a clickable pre-roll that comes in. There's right. sometimes a third ad that comes in, but you know, whatever the CPM is for those ads. And if you're a, a bigger sport, you know, take the NFL. They're probably you know able to get you know a $50, 70 seventy dollar, a hundred dollar CPM for for advertising around NFL football on YouTube. And if you're maybe a, a smaller sport uh, where you don't you know have as much uh, advertiser interest to be associated with that sport, or they're just going to pay a lower CPM. Mm-hmm. And if you're even a sport that doesn't get you know a tremendous amount of viewership, or even has a lot of other highlights on there. Uh, you know, YouTube has their own programmatic advertising that lay on against it, and you know that might be two to four dollars CPMs. You know, it depends on, on on each one, but but you know, there's a pretty broad range and the revenues that you can you can get depending on the, the, the sport that you are and the viewership you're going to get on the platform.
0: Okay, so it's it's really a, a fixed number of what the CPM you're getting, um, not so much on a percentage of uh, it's a hundred dollars and YouTube keeps fifty and the other fifty is given up. Is that how it's done?
1: Yeah, I mean, in principle, you know, if it's if if it's a hundred dollar CPM, YouTube will take a percentage, and the rights holder will take a percentage, right and right. you know. You know, and the ad, if the ad's brought by the rights holder, maybe they get a higher percentage. And if the ad's, you know, laid on there by YouTube, maybe they get a higher percentage. You know, I don't know what the latest negotiated deals are, but that's in principle kind
0: of how it's structured. At, at that, at your time there, what was sort of roughly the the percentage? You have a number? Remember in, in your head, or or is it something you're officially? Uh,
1: even if I remembered, it would probably be wrong. So I probably oh,
0: okay. won't, I wouldn't want to cope. Okay. No worries. Now let's let's quickly, and uh, I don't to say quickly, but let, let's have a you know good look at you know you know where. It Again, you really spent you know a good four or five years here now, um, and where you are now, of course. Um, you know, I want to skip, skip a little bit of a GoPro, and as you you have a particular story you like to share, and, and really want to spend a little bit of time with your days in Wonder Sports Group, which is really in front when you started, um, and of course in HBS there. Um, so all the things you've learned and everything you did, you know, up to this time leading up, of course, you know, the learning out of Google, I'm sure would have been amazing. Um, so now you're back in, again, in a in, a, in an agency world, right? Um, but you're very much in the, in the production side of it, right? Producing content, you know, again, HBS, of course, is the host broadcaster of the FIFA World Cup, um, you know, rugby, Asian games, Euro, you name it. I mean, you know, massive things, but it's very production specific, which really wasn't so much your space where you were otherwise right i mean i you know a lot, a lot of the other things i would say you were either in the business development or sales side of things and, and now you're sort of more in the, becoming mr product production here how did that all come about
1: well i mean you know we had you know we at least had some over you know touched on production when we were doing universal sports though I, we weren't actually producing that True. many events ourselves we did a True. few uh, and we certainly yeah. touched on some production at, uh, at at YouTube, but again, you know, my involvement to actually you know build a team to cover an event and you know uh, wasn't sort of my core experience set. But again, back to continual learning, you know, as I you know evolved my career, I always felt well, what what's something new I could do that further rounds me out to build the skill set around sports, hmm. and you know, the direct you know opportunity to to produce content around a sporting event. Uh, which is done by HBS, as you touched on, and also to come into what is was a relatively traditional agency, very successful agency. Uh, in Front Sports and Media, uh, which had then been acquired by the Wanda Corporation and Wanda Sports Group and work with a professional team of people led by Philip Ladder and the rest of the group there was, was super interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just acquired a, a, a digital uh, website app development company called Omnigon, uh, which was based in New York City. They were trying to evolve their business model more into you know digital and how could they become more of a digital offering with their, their rights holders and clients wanting to be able to do more there. And and having to create also more touch points with brands who are saying, you know, just tickets, hospitality. uh, alone or or, or not in board exposure alone are not really going to do it for us. You know, we need kind of more assets. We have a lot more touch points with consumers on social media, you know, at point of sale on our websites. You know, we need content. We need other ways to be able to interact with our, our consumers and we need rights that will allow us to do that. So it was a good opportunity to come in and you know evolve that thinking within the organization, uh, integrate Omnigon appropriately into the larger organization of Infront and make sure they were working across all. Of our existing client base uh and also to help uh, and work on, on a new sort of virtual overlay machine learning product which allowed organizations if you know if fifa is streaming or distributing uh, with broadcasters uh, the world cup in, in doha for example which will happen mm-hmm. in a few years you okay. know they they could replace the boards on the field of play so to speak and, and show a different set of boards in china or a different set of boards in japan or in brazil so you could then as in principle, sell local sponsorships to the FIFA World Cup as opposed to just these global sponsorships, because you could replace the boards and and the global sponsors probably don't have all 90 minutes uh, of the exposure around any given game at the World Cup. So you have you know X number of minutes you could sell locally, and so long as it wasn't a category that could, that conflicted with the existing global sponsors, it was and could be incremental revenue to, to a right. organization like FIFA, and uh, and it could allow them to you know create some local relationships in those markets where they really just couldn't do that before so you know it was really helping drive innovation across in which was super mm. exciting and then you know the team at, at hbs i mean they're a really professional group of people that have done a lot of world cups uh and uh francis Tellier, who headed it up when i arrived there uh had been doing this since you know the 1998 world cup in in, yes. in france uh so they um I think they're as good as it gets in terms of a group of people that know how to to pull that off and and be a host broadcaster for a big global event, be it the Asian Games, be it the Rugby uh, World Cup, or in, in in the case for FIFA, their their big World Cup events, men's and women's World Cups, and along with their other events. So. Yeah. So, uh, there wasn't a lot I had to do to kind of improve things there. I think those guys understood it, you know, I was at a fairly high level. I wasn't necessarily rolling up my sleeves and telling the team how to to reproduce things or better produce things. But we were always thinking about how could you better innovate, how could you create sort of a a digital product for the broadcasters, and a lot of the broadcasters didn't necessarily have the investment capacity to build a, a good digital offering. Of the World Cup, so how could we kind of, you know, create you know a VR, AR, and and digital streaming product that they could then integrate into their their live broadcast? So there was also a streaming component that was sophisticated with multiple camera views, multiple audio, and and make it sort of a richer, deeper experience than they would have had normally if it was just the broadcast stream. So, you know, HBS did a lot of that uh, with the team there, which I think has been pretty successful
0: to diversify. Uh, yeah, absolutely, I mean it's huge. Uh, and again, we could spend a whole podcast just on HBS here of amazing things. There. I've done Absolutely. Years. Um, but, you know, we don't have that time. We're already running way over here, but uh, it's, it's <laughs> all good. Uh, now, you know, again, a little bit here, you know, one thing I, I like, uh, what you obviously were doing here, really, you you were setting up, you know, you were working with startups, right, uh, with, with new groups in sports tech, which is also a bit like what you're doing now in your, in your own new business here. Um, you know, it's called it was called the Infront Lap, uh, which had, I guess, yeah. uh, you know, so an R&D division there where you're working with a whole bunch of guys. And, and of course, Wizard right? Which is the 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 uh, again the the, the, the virtual, virtual overlay? Really, what you know you mentioned earlier a bit, um, you know that seems to be like uh, you know really where sort of you know you're leveraging I guess you know your knowledge of digital and, and everything you've learned and, and uh, Google and others uh, you know over those years uh, and you're bringing it here right? Is that sort of the best way to to look at it? Yeah, I mean the exciting thing is you know we.
1: Um, some of the team members that uh, and in front, you know, thought would be really interesting, to kind of in InFront lab. Uh, Christian Mueller, who headed up all of our BD efforts, was kind of one of the driving forces behind it. Uh, Kimmy Krantz also. And so we were sent off uh, to Israel to meet a bunch of startups down there. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, had a really good experience. A lot of these companies were kind of on the cutting edge of, you know, creating new offerings or more efficient offerings for consumers. And I spoke earlier, you know, the ability to have clips and highlights, and, and and putting them appropriately on the different social platforms. What kind of clip and highlight would you put on YouTube, and when would you put it on YouTube versus on Instagram versus on, on Snapchat versus on on Facebook? You know, they're all kind of different types of offerings that should necessarily be put on there, and how could you kind of automate that in a way that was more efficient? So you know, around the uh, Russia World Cup in twenty eighteen. You know we started testing things out and also with some of the ice hockey events we have we were testing things out with some of these startup companies based in Israel you know one in particular WSC where it's sort of an automated clip and highlight service we, mm. we worked with them over a number of years and we found that you know you could teach the machine, so to speak, to create clips and highlights of an ice hockey game pretty efficiently. Right. Uh, instead of having 15 editors ready to create these clips and highlights you know, almost real time or right after the game, you could teach the machine to do this with two or three editors and have just as good a content, if not better content, and even tell the machine where to post that content. So so that kind of efficiency it was good for the end user, the fan, uh, good for the federation, you get more views and more interest in your content, and, and good for us because on the production side, it you know, reduce basic Costs and the number of people to, to do this work, so long as you top things in early on, and we were seeing that, that those kind of efficiencies could work in a whole variety of areas. So, so the lab I think has been a really good uh, good vehicle for for Infront has really helped kind of continue their their effort to to evolve. And then kind of coming out of my experience in Infront, yeah, it was was great working with the team there. Super exciting, you know, brought in a new CEO Dan Dobnik to run HBS. You know, put in a CEO to run uh, what was kind of reconstituted brand, which we now call Infront XIX, uh, and Christoph Himes, who'd worked with me at, at YouTube and Google, came over to lead that effort up, and you know, really great team there. Um, you know, it was a good again back to me. You know, every three or four years, I kind of think, well, what, what am I going to do next? Um, and <laughs> this uh, was the time. You know, and was super excited about kind of all this. You know, this sense that you know technology and sport was at an nexus point, kind of like the early two uh, thousands when you know, all the technology boom with all the dot-coms and so forth. I think there's just a lot of richness now around AI, machine learning, sport, you know, and the whole coaching, training, learning space. And you're seeing now coming out of COVID-19, just, you know, my wife's a yoga teacher and an anti-gravity instructor, and but she does a lot of yoga classes herself that she doesn't teach, but she takes the classes. And I've actually been starting to do a lot of them too. But now she can she can get on a uh, yoga class taught by a guy named chad who's located in santa monica he used to teach at a place called yoga works in santa monica they've closed all the yoga works in in california and now chad just basically does all of his his yoga instruction through live streaming right. and he's now got students in germany and, and in spain and in mexico and, and my wife in switzerland and she's <laughs> you know joined his class three times a week he, i think a couple of his classes start at seven thirty in the morning in santa monica so it's four thirty here perfect timing for her and you're seeing that a lot of this, the fitness and instruction and all that, is you know really congregating to a streaming solution. Particularly coming out of COVID, a lot of gyms are even closed, in a lot of marketplaces or people aren't real comfortable going to a gym. Yeah. Um, so that you know, it's again, technology's really played a key role. You look at the success of, of Zoom. You look at the success of Peloton now, just coming out of the yeah. last nine months. You know, I don't think that's going to just stop and go away once there is a successful vaccine and things get more back to normal. I think there's still a mindset that, hey, why can't I just do it like this? And why can't you know, why can't instructors like Chad and yoga have a global audience? You, know, you can Absolutely. get some on a global basis and have 60 people in this class versus 20. It just yep. becomes a pretty interesting prospect.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I follow the space very closely as well. I mean, let's call it the the online fitness space, really, right? Yeah. We're talking about here. Um, A, of course, the the money they've raised uh, is fairly substantial, right? The numbers you see there coming out of the U.S. Um, some of the high profile investors are not just that's called your traditional private equity groups but also big athletes right? Uh, Steve Curry I think invested in one of them and yeah. um, so clearly it is on the radar uh, if I'm sure for many people um, actually I'm doing some work with a group out of Holland which has an incredible it's a, it looks like a mirror right, which you have on the wall and then you, uh, sure. you basically have all the the competitions or all the all the exercises on it so I'm doing yeah. some stuff Very with these guys yeah. Uh, again, I love the space. I think both, um, you know, having it at home, of course, or, or in, let's say, uh, you know, gym environment. Uh, I think these are all, that that is a huge future there. And and, and again, you're right, Lisa, you, you're right. It's, I don't think it is just COVID. COVID as usual has, it has accelerated this and probably Correct. shown a bigger light on it than it would be otherwise. Um, but yeah, there, there's, it's a it's a very interesting space. And to some degree, that's, you know, you've, you've obviously left, you know, Infund recently or Wanda recently um, and set up your. Own agency. And, and it sounds like that's sort of the space you like playing in, right? Uh, working with startups, um, you know, you've done, you, you obviously, all your experience in what we just talked about here the last hour and a half. Uh, but also, of course, you, you knew how to raise money, you know, you did it yourself uh, with your own, you know, uh, group you had there, Universal, etc. So... This is—is is, is that what you're doing right now? Is this sort of, you know, your your final hooray here, or or what do you see this at? <laughs> well, I mean, it's
1: just, you know, I'm working with a whole set of different startups in the in the coaching, training, learning space, in the in the, in the digital advertising space. Um, we launched an app in in Mexico with a team called, out of a organization called TPI Titleist Professional Institute greg rose and dave phillips they've, they've built uh, an app they're really you know sort of they're the number one guys when it comes to training uh, uh golf instructors are either tpi one level two or three certified it's kind of a you know a diploma you have as a golf instructor so they really understand sport and instruction and they built uh, an app that, that was launched in mexico at the end of february that I'd been involved in and advising them on. And it's, you know, it's had like 200,000 plus downloads. All the kids stopped all their normal coaching and training with their coaches in Mexico. The amateur younger kids, you know, from five to 17 year olds all had, you know, everything got shut down for them. So everyone started downloading the app and doing the drills and skills on the app and sharing the information uh, you can build an avatar. You can share with your friends kind of how you're doing in the different developmental levels that exist and, you know, as you run through the different skills and drills. And uh, you know, I think that's a real future uh, around sport. And, you know, as you think about FIFA and their their efforts to you know invest in you know uh, football development, football in schools. I think. You know, beyond just sending capital to the national federations, you know, building tools for them to help build participation and build interest in the sports is really exciting. And I think, you know, we're kind of at a nexus point now where there's a, enough sophistication digitally so you can create an app that's really going to engage kids and get them to, you know, do their sport, you know, by just looking at it on a phone, so to speak. So, so it, it's, a, it's a fun time right now.
0: It sure is. Now, I, I'm definitely going to wrap it up here now, um, but the I have last question, I, and I couldn't quite see it, it whether you're doing anything in esports at all, um, you know, or is it still mostly in the more, let's call it, traditional sports world?
1: Most of it's traditional. Yeah, some of my friends, Lucien Boyer, just got really involved in an esports company. I think he just became chairman of a big esports company. We're going to actually ah. talk tomorrow. We haven't been in touch for a little while. Uh, I've not... Done a lot in the esports space, but I think it's a huge growth area. You know, between the federations, you know, having their gaming opportunities, FIFA with their their football offerings, and uh, and uh, I just think it's a, a real growth area. It's just not something I've spent a lot of time on personally. We were involved in some esports stuff at at Infront, um, uh, and the, the team there was was doing some investments in some esports companies. Uh, it's not that I'm not interested. I've uh, I've got a 19 and 20 year old son who's certainly spending a lot of time playing esports, yeah, and yeah. you know i've certainly spent some time doing that usually losing badly to him at every <laughs> game i play with him uh, you know I'll, I'll get my full accoutrement of guns and everything and i'll just let him have a knife and he still beats me easily so so <laughs> it is what it is but uh but i think yeah i think it's a really strong growth area to, you know you've seen the kind of audiences you're getting and the participation levels here it's super interesting but i guess i'm more of a Get off the couch, kind of guy, and get out there and exercise and be active. I think that you know allows you to live longer, allows to help your brain be smarter, and allows you to to you know take less less medication as you get older and, and <laughs> gives you a long life. So, you know, not, nothing against esports, nothing against sitting and being a couch potato, so to speak, or being a participant there. I'm, I'm not saying that's bad and it's probably good for your mind there too, but I, I do kind of probably want to reinforce kind of my mindset of, of, of what you, what are the good things to do in your life? Not that esports is bad, don't get me wrong, but I think that yeah, I like to sort of spend where I have a big passion and my passion is around, you know, participation and activation and, and getting underserved audiences an opportunity to see things or see sports that they just can't necessarily see as easily as they'd like, you know, just just, just being able to find a sport in some cases that's being distributed in your country is never an easy thing right now. So, you know, creating solutions like that uh, I think are critically important as, as the web gets more sophisticated and you know and more tailored and focused to individual interests and needs
0: absolutely I, I mean I I think you're, you're a bit like me there is always way too much to do than time of the day um, the opportunities are everywhere and and you know exciting startups are coming up and, and asking for help of course or you know you see it yourself uh, where the opportunities are so uh, we will have some more conversations on this uh, Claude. this was an incredible you know more than an hour and a half now here I think you actually beat David Falk, who was till, <laughs> that till now my lo- my longest I'm, I ever had.
1: I, I, I'm sure David <laughs> had a lot more interesting and fun stories to tell about a lot of amazing personalities that he's worked uh, with.
0: It, they were different, but I, I think you had a lot of great stuff in here. And, and again, there would be tons of learning uh, for everyone in there um, across your different career paths, and you know, all the way from you know what we talked earlier from the Coca-Cola days to uh, to where we are now here. So uh, this was fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your time. Have a great day there. Uh, rest of the day there in Switzerland, and I'm sure we'll talk some more soon.
1: Thanks, Marcus. I really appreciate you you hanging in here for this whole thing. I, I hope I didn't bore you and all of your listeners in the future, but but it's been good talking about things. It was really exciting, and, and thanks for, for for having me.
0: Uh, definitely. It was fun, and we'll do some more. Thanks. Thanks, Glenn. All right. Have a great day. All the you best. Too. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Luer Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Luer. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.